Welcome to the 43rd episode of the Head Kick KO podcast. Today we're going to be doing a full breakdown of UFC 266. After that, we're going to have a lot of news to touch on. There were a handful of fight announcements and a handful of breaking news items that we need to talk about that we haven't talked about yet. So we will touch on those. And this episode is going to be pretty long because there is going to be a lot of to talk about with UFC 266 and there is a lot to talk about with those other pieces of news so if we have time at the end we will look forward to Tiago Santos versus Johnny Walker that main event and the rest of that fight card but if this episode runs too long we will not do that but we will for sure touch on UFC 266 and the other news I just spoke on. So we're going to start it off, obviously, right at the main event. That is Alex Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega. Now, this fight was, I think, a lot closer than a lot of people are giving Ortega credit for. And I'm not saying that to um, lessen how strong this performance was by Volkanovsky. Um, I'll talk on the, I'll talk about that, too. Alex Volkanovsky had an absolute absolutely tremendous performance but we got to give Brian Ortega some credit here and definitely more than what he has been getting lately because he did have a great performance rounds one and two were close rounds um obviously Volkanovski won when I say they're close rounds I don't mean they're toss-ups I just mean that Ortega had some moments and he won some exchanges he had some moments he did good but not good enough to win rounds but good enough to show that he was in that fight, especially early. And then in the third round, he drops Volkanovski, gets deep in a submission attempt. That's probably one of the deeper submissions I've seen, especially mounted guillotines um, that wasn't finished. Um, Volkanovski did a great job of getting out of that. There was some initial panic, you know, the legs were going wild, and that choke was deep on Volkanovski. But he was able to get out, escape, and the most impressive part of that exchange was when Volkanovski got out of that mounted guillotine, he didn't stay in mount. I mean, there was never any time in that third round when Ortega had some good grappling moments. None of none of that led to good position and ground and pound from Ortega. Volkanovski was able to control position for most of those exchanges outside of the two deep submission attempts in that third round that being the mounted guillotine and the triangle and then obviously um Volkanovski ended up winning that third round by a large margin with the massive ground and pound shots that he was landing he almost finished it I think that's a really interesting round in that fight where you could score that I mean I have trouble scoring that a 10-8 for Volkanovski just because of just because when you get dropped and almost choked out, it is, I struggle giving you a 10-8 in that round, but he did dominate very thoroughly. Volkanovski comes back, gets a 10-8 in round four, and then in round five, Alex Volk, or excuse me, Brian Ortega, I think won round five. Um, if you give round five to Volkanovski, no argument. I think it was a very, very close round. And if you were to watch round five and just isolate that round and not take into consideration the first four rounds, I think you would have to give it to Ortega. But that just shows the heart that Brian Ortega has and the toughness he has to, after getting 10 in round 
in round four, he came back and won round five. So very impressive performance by Brian. But Alex Volkanovski was just the better fighter last night. And Volkanovski's cardio was just absolutely off the charts. He had a lot of pressure, and that's why he saw success, especially early in the first two rounds. He was able to back Ortega up, and Ortega didn't do a lot of the things he did well in the Korean zombie fight here. He just wasn't able to. He wasn't able to land as consistently against Volkanovski as he was against the Korean zombie. The one thing that I wish Brian Ortega would have went to a little bit more that he did against uh, the Korean zombie very well was he was attempting takedowns and he wasn't attempting takedowns with the um, purpose of grappling. He was attempting takedowns. He would get in on a leg and then he would let go and strike on the break. I wish he would have done a little bit more of that, especially early in the fight. That gives Volkanovski something to think about with takedown attempts. Well, you are still landing good strikes. So I wish that was something he would have implemented, especially earlier. But um, not that big of a deal. And um, from Volkanovski, that cardio and that pressure was very impressive. And he was landing some big, big shots. One of the things we always give credit to Volkanovski for is that he is such a great technical fighter. And that still rings true, but in this fight, he landed some massive power shots that really a lot of fighters at that weight class couldn't take, but Brian Ortega is able to take those. He's got an amazing chin. Um, Max Holloway and Brian Ortega both do, and they're probably the only two guys who would eat those shots in that division. Um, so... Great performance by Volkanovski, and the I touched on this a little bit, but the grappling transitions on the ground were absolutely tremendous. I mean, to be grappling with Brian Ortega and come out in some advantageous positions says a lot about your ability to grapple, and that probably comes from working with Craig Jones a lot. So, great performance by Volkanovski on the ground. He was able to get to advantageous positions, and when he was in good positions, he was able to land a lot of ground and pound, a lot of powerful ground and pound. He had Ortega mounted up and just raining down strikes. And this version of Alex Volkanovski is going to be very hard to beat just based off how well-rounded he is. I mean, nobody else, I don't think, in that division could grapple and strike with Brian Ortega on that level. Brian Ortega is someone who really doesn't have too many weaknesses. So when you're fighting someone without any weaknesses and you go in there and look stronger in just about every situation of that fight, very impressive. Very, very impressive. That says volumes about Alex Volkanovski and his skill set. And the one thing that this fight really proved to me was that Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovski are by far the two best 145 pounders in the planet and it's by a wide margin at the beginning of this i talked about how volkanovsky still look or excuse me how ortega still looked good and he did but in rounds three and four specifically volkanovsky looked tremendous and i really don't see how you could compare anyone to holloway and volkanovsky I think the only other guy right now is Zabit, who would be on a similar level of skill set. But I think Zabit lacks in the cardio department. When you have guys like Volkanovski and Holloway who are able to pressure you um, like they can, 
I think cardio is something that is crucial to being able to be both of them. And I just don't think Giga has that right now. And he could develop that. Or excuse me, not Giga. Zabit. Um, I don't know why I said Giga. Um, but Zabit is a very talented guy who needs to round out that cardio. And maybe he could prove that he's on this level. Um, but right now, there's nobody other, other than Holloway and Volkanovski. So with that being said, what is next for Alex Volkanovski? Who is he going to defend this belt against? And there's been a lot of talk. And... The one thing that we do know for sure is if he defends this 145-pound belt next, it's probably going to be against the winner of Max Holloway versus Yair Rodriguez. I'm going to touch a little bit about that, uh, more on that fight in a second. But the reason I said probably is because Henry Cejudo did say he wanted to come back and fight Volkanovski at 145. Now, I say probably... It's going to be Max versus Yair because I really doubt that that happens. But I feel like it is something that we need to touch on. We need to touch anytime Henry Cejudo says, "Hey, I'd like I'm you know maybe interested in coming back." Um, I think it's something we need to touch on. Now, do I think he comes back? I don't. I think this is a situation where Henry Cejudo is looking, throwing just throwing his name out there and see what's and waiting to see what sticks. Uh, I don't think anything really stuck here. I'm not really interested in Volkanovski versus Cejudo. But if we're going to do that fight right now, would make sense. Volkanovski said he wants to fight soon. And we have Max versus Yair in November. So if they wanted to book that fight in the December and January range and then have Max or Yair, the winner of that, turn around and fight um, probably March maybe a little bit later than that next year, that would be plausible. I don't think it's the best thing to do right now with the 145-pound division, but you could do that. So um, another thing is, or uh, Volkanovski talked about moving up to lightweight. Uh, the, the main thing here is that from watching Volkanovski's post-fight press conference is that he really just wants to fight, and whether that be at 145 or 155, yeah, it doesn't sound like it really makes that big of a difference. Obviously, going up to 155, you have to question, you know, is it for a belt? Is it for um, a money fight against someone like Connor? I'm not saying that that would happen, but why are we going up to 155 would be the major question with that fight um, specifically or that, or that um, career path specifically. But um, all signs... I'd say it's about a 90% chance that we see Volkanovski versus the winner of Max versus Yair, and then probably a 5% chance to move to lightweight, 5% chance Cejudo comes back. That's the way I would split that up. And really, I don't even think we should, should have, I don't even think the UFC should have booked this Max versus Yair fight. It really just doesn't make that much sense to me. The timing was definitely the most, was definitely the most, you know, the the most interesting aspect of get this fight getting rebooked. Um, the July fight made a lot more sense because they fight in July. This fight happens in September. So we get a little bit of a buffer between the two. And then you have the number one contender ready to make the turnaround when Volkanovski is ready. Now you have a situation where the champ has to wait 
for the number one contenders fight, and I don't think that's ever really good. And it's very clear that the UFC did this as a response to Misha Tate getting COVID and having to pull out of her November 13th fight. I believe that was the day that was going to take place. Um, But it really just looks like they're trying to fill that... um, that November 13th main event slot, and it looks like they just needed a fight to do that with, and um, Rodriguez versus Hollywood was the fight they went with. I don't think there's any really any situation here where... I just don't think there's really any situation here where Max needs to take this fight. I think it's just a big risk for him to take a fight against someone as dangerous as Yair. I do think Max wins this fight, but it just really doesn't make sense, especially with the timing of it all coming just days before Volkanovski and Ortega fight. Because if you wait until the, if they wanted to really make this fight, you wait until this week just so you can see what happens with Ortega and Volkanovski, and then you can go from there with both. Um, with both fights in mind, the Max versus Volkanovski and the Max versus Yair. So really just questionable decision-making there, but um, I guess we're going to have to live with it, and we're probably going to get either Max or Yair versus Volkanovski next. And then for Brian Ortega, obviously he's going to have to take some time off. He got he got pretty beat up. Um, he was hurt bad. That eye looked messed up. Um, he couldn't see anything. Apparently, um, now this is alleged. This isn't. This isn't fact. This is alleged. Apparently, he told someone in his corner who spoke Spanish that he couldn't see anything out of that eye and to keep it on the DL. Um, whether that is true or not, I don't know because I don't speak Spanish. But apparently, that is something that did happen, and. Um, that just goes to show how tough Brian Ortega is, but also he got beat up a little bit, so he's going to have to take some time off. Now, what is next for Brian Ortega? I still think very highly of Brian Ortega because not many guys can go in there and do that to Brian and can go in there and um, deal with the grappling of Brian like Alex Volkanovsky did. So earlier I said, Max Holloway and Alex Volkanovski are the two best featherweights on the planet by a large margin. I still believe that, like I said, but I would have to say that Ortega right now is probably the best of the rest. Ortega is probably number one if you were to take out Volkanovski and Max. So what is next for Ortega? I think the loser of Max Holloway versus Yair Rodriguez makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's me taking into assumption that it's going to be a year. Even if Max does lose that fight, that fight would still make sense. Max Holloway versus Ortega. But I do think if Max loses at 145 again, he's probably going to bump up to 155. Um, just because there wouldn't be much left for him at 145. But with that being said, um, Yair or Max lose that fight. I think if they stay at 145, that would make a lot of sense. Ortega versus Yair or Max, and then that would give them, both of them, a large period of time to recover, um, so I think that fight would make a lot of sense. Moving on to the co-main event, we had Valentina Shevchenko versus Lauren Murphy, that was just a dominant display 
by Valentina Shevchenko. And she proved once again that she is one of the best fighters in the world. And she proved that she is a dominant champion at, at 125 pounds once again. So the things that stood out to me here were just how quick Valentina is. I mean, this isn't anything new at all. But it was just reinforced in this fight. She looks so ridiculously quick. When she is throwing combos, the speeds are wild. When she ends combos with that leg kick, super effective. And also, she can hit that kick very quick. The kicks to the body have wild speed on them. The spinning, the spinning kicks are all super quick. And that makes them really hard to counter. So... Valentina looked almost impossible to beat here. The technical ability was tremendous. I mean, the when you combine her speed and technique into one, it's 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 a tough task to go in there and fight her. Um, the finish was tremendous. She hits Lauren Murphy with the check hook. Very strong check hook. Has her hurt. Hits her with a head kick. Then hits her... You know, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And at this point, I don't know how Lauren Murphy ate all those without without just crumbling. But it got to the fence. Valentina drags her down, lands some more ground and pound, fights over. And the way that Valentina can go from, okay, this is technical. Um, I'm going to pick you apart. I'm going to hit you with the check hook with perfect timing. And she can snap at the drop of a second and go, okay, I have you hurt. Now I have to finish you and just pour on, um, pour on her opponent. That's already in a vulnerable state. Very impressive. And that might've been the most impressive thing that I saw all night was her ability to go get that finish when it presented himself. Now, what is next for Valentina? We really only have one thing that stands out and that is Amanda Nunes, obviously. Amanda Nunes and Valentina Shevchenko are the two best female fighters of all time by an incredibly large margin, and there is no dispute to that. Now, with Amanda Nunes, it's, it's a little bit different here because Amanda is defending her 135-pound belt, I believe, or is it the 145-pound? 130, she's defending 135 against Juliana Pena. Now, assuming she wins that fight, that would leave us, and that fight I believe is in December. Assuming she wins that fight, I wouldn't be surprised if she retires just because she has talked so openly about retiring, and she has talked about that since the Megan Anderson fight. She's talked about retiring pretty openly, and I wouldn't. so I wouldn't be surprised if she walks away from the sport after that fight. And for for Valentina, if Amanda does that and walks away, um, that really doesn't leave her anyone to fight. Obviously, if Amanda wins, I think you have to make that fight at 135 pounds just right away. I don't think there's any dispute there. Um, I think everyone's going to be on board. We've had enough time since the rematch. Uh, we have to see Valentina versus Amanda again. Once again, assuming that Amanda stays in the sport. But if, if that fight for any reason doesn't happen, Valentina is in a, in a 
terrible spot in terms of having a number one contender. Looking at the division, you have Jessica Andrade in the one slot. She was able to go out there and get a good win over Cynthia Calvillo, but we already saw that fight once, and I didn't see anything in that fight that made me say, okay, if Jessica Andrade can do this, she can win, or if Jessica Andrade changes this or adds this, she she would be competitive in that fight. I just didn't see that. Caitlin Chikagian, I didn't see anything from her that made me think, okay, she could win this fight. Lauren Murphy at three. Um, didn't see anything from her that she could win this fight. Jennifer Maya at four. Um, didn't really see much. She did win a round, which is cr- almost crazy in hindsight to even believe. So she had the most impressive performance out of everyone in the top four that has challenged Valentina. But I'm not overly excited to see that matchup because... Valentina still won handedly. And then you've got Calvillo at five, who just lost. Joanne Calderwood at six. And Viviane Arjuno at seven. Jessica I at eight. Roxanne Montaferri at nine. It's just there's nothing here that really stands out to me for Valentina. The one interesting thing is Tatiana Suarez, who is looking to make her return. And she's looking to move up to 125 pounds. So I would have to say that Tatiana Suarez stands out more than anybody. But then again, you also can't throw Tatiana Suarez into a fight with Valentina Shevchenko after the long layoff she has had and having it be her first fight in the division. That just is not something that makes any sense at all. I think that fight is something that stands out to me eventually. Not right now, but eventually. So if you're looking for what's next for Valentina right now, it, it, there really isn't anything. Um, and unless someone from 115 decides to move up, I mean, if anyone in the top three moves up, if Joanna decided, hey, I want to move up to fight Valentina, I mean, I'm not overly bullish on Joanna versus Valentina in general. But I think that that fight makes more sense than Andrade, Chikagian, Lauren Murphy, Jennifer Maya, Cynthia Calvillo. That's the top five. And Yuana would make more sense than any of those. Um, even if Rose or Wei Li, they're fighting. But I'm so, I mean, that can't, neither of them can move up. Say Carla Esparza even. I mean, just some parody because... Carla Esparza has earned a title shot at 115, and I think if you send her up to 125, she would also um, be deserving of a title shot. So, I mean, if Mackenzie Dern moved up to 125 and caught a win, and she's fighting Marina Rodriguez, but if she moved up to 125, caught a win, you could throw in there with Valentina. But I guess the point I'm trying to make here, throwing out all these scenarios is that nothing stands out or makes a level of sense really outside of Amanda Nunes. And if Amanda Nunes walks away from the sport, I guess you could still make the case that Valentina should, you know, maybe go to 135 and try and get that belt. Um, I'm not too bullish on that either, just because she did move up from 115 to 125. So it's not like she's a massive 100 and 125 pounder. But, you know, then again, also... Her skill gap could really uh, do some damage. The speed, her taking her speed to 135, I think would be interesting. So I think she'd be able to do it. But still, that doesn't even stick out to me as something overly exciting for Valentina. So basically, it's either Amanda Nunes or 
we're going to be in a tough situation for Valentina next. Moving on, the probably the most interesting, the most confusing um, fight on this card, and that is Robbie Lawler versus Nick Diaz, the return of Nick Diaz. Now, this little thing I'm going to talk about here, I'm going to talk more about Nick Diaz because that is why everyone was so interested in this fight with all due respect to Robbie Lawler. Robbie looked good. He was able to time up some heavy shots, land some heavy shots, landed some good shots to the body. He eventually landed a good check hook, knocks Nick down, Nick doesn't get back up. Now, something just seemed off in this fight for Nick Diaz. This didn't seem like Nick Diaz. I don't know if it's just the age, and he just physically looks different. Um, He looked a little bit slower than he usually does. I mean, he usually, he's never looked fast. Um, and that's by design, but he looked particularly slow in this fight, and I can't help but feel awkward about this when he doesn't get up to keep fighting after Robbie lands that hook. Essentially, he gave up and didn't want to fight anymore, and I, I don't really blame him after the layoff he has had, and just looking at what we saw from Diaz throughout his whole career, Nick Diaz would have never done that 10 years ago. You know, with the wars he had with guys like Paul Daly, even the first fight with Robbie, if he gets knocked down, he's going to get back up, and he's going to get back up swinging. That's just Nick Diaz, and we didn't see that in this fight. Um, And that makes me question, why was Nick in the octagon? Was he in the octagon because he wanted to fight? Did other Was he in here because he felt pressured by other people? Um, Jake Shields put out a tweet where he said Nick only had six weeks to train and that he only had six weeks because this return was rushed by um, specific people around him. So I'm not really sure where to go from here with Nick Diaz. <coughs> Excuse me. If Nick truly wants to fight, I think we let Nick fight. But if Nick doesn't truly want to fight, we need to walk away. <clears throat> and I think that is an interesting thing to think about. I saw uh, another tweet that also raised a good point. He hasn't fought in six years. His original ban for marijuana was going to be five years. So is he coming back just to end this on his own terms? rather than end on the terms of athletic commissions that originally suspended him for five years? Maybe. You know, that's a real possibility. And I don't particularly want to see Nick fight again, if that's the Nick we see. If we see a different Nick, then yeah. Um, the problem is he didn't seem like he wanted to fight. He didn't seem like he wanted to be there. At no point in time did he seem confident that he was going to win or he didn't seem like he wanted to fight, period. If you look at all the pre-fight stuff, he said, you know, I'm not, I don't really want, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how this fight happened. Um, just a lot of questions where something just seems off. And if Nick doesn't want to fight, don't fight. If he wants to fight, give him... You could give him 
Cowboy at 170. My apologies once again for the cough coming back. Um, but you could give him Cowboy Cerrone at 170. And that fight would make a level of sense. Because you don't have to worry about Cowboy going in there and doing big time damage to Nick. And, you know, someone like Robbie is. Robbie's still dangerous. As much as he's older, he's still dangerous. He still throws heavy shots. Um, if Nick wants to fight again, I think it's got to be against someone like Cowboy. And then going from there, if if his performance against Cowboy would look similar to this, then you got to cut it off. But if we see improvements and we see a Nick Diaz that wants to be there and is excited to be there, um, then okay, we can we can keep doing this. But um, like I said, we either got to retire and hang him up or, you know, show some changes. Um, and I think that's where I'm at with Nick Diaz, and that is coming from someone who is a big Diaz fan. So moving on, though, we had Curtis Blades and Jorginho Rosenstrike also fighting on the main card of that. UFC 266 pay-per-view. Now, this might be the most Curtis Blades fight I've ever seen in my life. Um, Jarzino did land some good shots on the feet. He landed that flying knee. Very good. But Curtis Blades was able to control this fight with takedowns and ground control. And he played his game plan to a T. Anytime you're fighting someone like Jarzino and you have the ability to take the fight to the ground, you might as well do it. And good for Curtis Blades for being able to um, utilize his game plan. Now, what is next for Curtis Blades? I have no idea. This heavyweight division is really hard to matchmake because so many of these guys, has fought, guys have fought each other. I mean, for Curtis Blades, you've got Nganu and Surreal Gan fighting each other. And then you've got Stipe. I don't think Stipe versus Curtis Blades is going to happen. And then you've got Derek Lewis, who he's already fought. Alexander Volkanovsky, who he's already fought. Jorginho Rosenstrike, who he's already fought. And just beat, obviously. Um, then you've got Shamil at 7, who just lost. Marcin Tabora at 8. You've got Chris Dowskis at 10, who did just win. Thankfully, Chris Dowskis and Tom Aspinall are making this division interesting by breaking into the top 10 and really making a run here. Chris Dowskis is probably going to move up to that sixth slot. So maybe Chris Dowskis versus Curtis Blades, but I would rather see, actually rather see Jarzinia Rosenstrike versus Chris Dowskis. <clears throat> I think that fight just makes more sense. And so for Curtis Blades, he's really in a bad spot where I don't know who he's going to fight. And... You know, if Shamil would have won, I think that would have made a level of sense, but he didn't. Um, Marcin Tabora is really working his way up, but I don't think Blades versus Tabora makes a level of sense. So just to really to cut this off, I think Chris Dowskis versus Jarzinho Rosenstrike makes a lot of sense. I think that um, Jarzinho is a top heavyweight, and I think there is a big gap in between Shamil and Jarzinho in terms of skill. So I think taking that step would be a good step for Chris Dowskis. And then he can maybe fight Curtis Blades if he wins that. 
and Tom Espinal also needs to move up these rankings. So Thauskas and Espinal are doing their best to make this interesting and apply some parity to this division, but there is very little parity running around at the moment. And then we also, on this card, had Marab versus Marlon Marais. Now, this fight was wild. Crazy first round. Marlon had some really, really good moments. But Marab was just able to take over. And this is a really, uh, really another situation where, where does Marab move from here? He had just beat the number six ranked guy at 135. So he's going to move up. But where where do we move him to? He just beat Marlin, so he's probably going to be ranked sixth. And having several several wins in a row, you know, he's probably going to be looking at someone ahead of him in the rankings. But when you look at ahead of him in the rankings, the matchmaking for this division looks very clear to me. And we're going to talk more about this in a little bit. But right now, TJ Dillashaw just had surgery. Corey Sandhagen is probably going to fight Piotr Jan. We'll talk more on that later. And then that really leaves Rob Font and Jose Aldo, who I think you need to match up. And then that would really leave Marab out of the top six in terms of matching people up. And then, you know, Frankie Edgar at eight is matched up with Marlon Vera. Cody Garbrandt at seven is moving down to 125 to take on Kai Car France. You don't do Pedro Munoz and Marab because Munoz is at 9 coming off a loss. Marab is probably going to be up to 6. So there really isn't much that makes sense to me for Marab moving forward. I think he's going to have to wait and wait for some of these fights to play out. And then he can get an opponent from there. And then for... Marlon Marais, I think this is a lot easier to match make. I think the next fight for for Marlon should be Dominic Cruz. I think that Dom is needs to fight high level competition because he's good enough. But at the same time, you can't throw Dominic Cruz all the way up to the top five to take on someone like Aldo and Font. So I think Marais would be a good um, next step for Dominic Cruz before he breaks back in to the top five of that division. So that's where I've got um, matchmaking there. Marlon versus Dom Cruz, and then Marab's going to have to wait it out so we can get someone ranked higher than him. And then the last fight I'm going to talk about from UFC 266 is going to be Dan Hooker and Hazrat. Now, the fact that both of these guys were able to make this walk very, very, very impressive, and hats off to him. For those who don't know, Hazrat lost his mother two weeks ago, and he did not get to the country until Friday because he had visa issues. Dan Hooker also didn't get to the country until Friday because he had visa issues. So for both of these guys, very impressive performances, and... Hats off to him to even be able to show up to fight. Very impressive. Also, shout out to Terrence McKinney. For those who don't know, Terrence McKinney is the guy who, in his UFC debut, had the eight-second knockout and then almost busted his knee. Um, 
is celebrating afterwards. Now, why shout out Terrence McKinney here? Because Terrence McKinney found out that, uh-oh, these guys might not be able to fight. Um, come to find out, Dan Hooker is good to go, but we're still waiting to see if Hazrat can go. So what did Terrence McKinney do? He's in Vegas on wait and said, hey, I'll fight Dan Hooker if Hazrat can't make it. Hope Hazrat can make it, but I'll be here and I'll be ready to go if you need me. So Dan Hooker was going to have a fight, it looked like, and it looked like it was going to be against Terrence McKinney if um, Hazrat was unable to go. So also shout out to Terrence McKinney for being ready and throwing his hat in the ring when he saw an opportunity. So always shout out to fighters like that. But now in terms of the actual fight, we saw Dan Hooker came in and looked really, really good. First two rounds, lots of pressure. Has Hazrat backed up against the fence, landed some shots, landed some knees in the clinch, and really showed some vastly improved wrestling. I mean, Dan Hooker hit the the takedown he hit in the middle of the cage was tremendous. I mean, he sees the strike coming, changes levels quick and aggressively, gets to the legs of Hazrat, gets the takedown, and then controls a lot of ground, or has a lot of ground control from there. So very good performance from Dan Hooker, able to adapt, change some strategy a little bit, catch Hazrat off guard, and he's able to go out there and get a win. So very good performance by Dan Hooker. Now afterwards, he calls out Benil Daryush. Now, for Benil Daryush, this is interesting. Because looking at how this division is booked up, um, there are really aren't there aren't very many guys ahead of Dan Hooker that don't have matches booked. I mean, Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier are probably gonna fight. Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler that fight is booked. Islam Makhachev versus Rafael dos Anjos fight is booked. Then you've got Dan Hooker at eight. That leaves in terms for fighters ahead of him. That leaves him Tony Ferguson and Benil Daryush to call out. Now, who knows what's going on with Tony Ferguson. There were rumors about 170. And personally, I think Tony Ferguson should keep it under wraps until Conor McGregor is ready to return and try and get that fight. And Tony Ferguson, there were also rumors that he was ghosting the UFC. when They were trying to get him a fight, but he just wasn't having it. And so... Tony Ferguson's a guy where it's like, I don't know if that's a good call-out because who knows if you're going to get a response or a reaction. So the only other guy being Benil Daryush. Now, for Dan Hooker, this call-out might seem aggressive. You're beating an unranked guy and you're number eight. You're trying to move all the way back up to number three. But Dan Hooker does have a level of experience in this division that would help him get that fight, being he just did the UFC a favor. He put on a fight of the night with... Poirier, he put on a fight of the night with Felder. So, realistically, if anyone's going to get that jump from 8 to 3, it would be someone like Dan Hooker. Now, for Benil Daryush, you'd be you might be thinking, you know, this fight really doesn't make any level of sense at all. But also, if Benil Daryush wants to be active, he really has no other choice than Dan Hooker. Like I said, um everyone's booked except Tony so we are we've already seen Darius versus Tony that really doesn't get Darius anything. 
And then you've got um, Conor McGregor at 9. We're not going to see Conor versus Daryush. You've got Gregor, Gregor Gillespie at 10. Now, if you're Benil, Benil Daryush, would you rather fight Dan Hooker at 8 or Gregor Gillespie at 10? You know, Dan Hooker at 8 would be the answer there. And realistically, Benil Daryush having the number 3 next to his name, you know, the rankings don't really matter that much, but having Benil Daryush as the number 3 ranked guy is pretty aggressive. Um, I would make the argument that Michael Chandler is better, and I would also make the argument that Islam Makhlchev is better. So I think 5 would be a better ranking right now for Benil Daryush. And so at that point, you would really be looking at 5 versus 8. So basically what I'm saying here is this fight makes sense to me, and this is a fight that I would want to see. Dan Hooker gets an opportunity. Benil Daryush would be proving himself once again. And I think from there, that would put Benil Daryush in a good position to possibly get a title shot if he wins. If he can go out there and finish Dan Hooker, um, then yes. If it's a close decision, you know, you'd have to think some things through, see how some other fights in the division go. But if you can go out there and finish Dan Hooker, that's better than sitting on the sidelines and waiting. Or... Benil Dariush could try and play a Finland spot for one of these other fights. So there's a lot of routes for Benil Dariush, but I think Dan Hooker would be a good route for Dariush. Now, that is everything for UFC 266 that I'm going to be talking about. There was obviously other things that happened, but we're not going to touch on those. We're going to move on to the news portion of the show. Now, there is a lot of news here because we haven't spoke in two weeks. Um, my apologies for that. Two weeks ago, there wasn't really much to talk about. And last week, I had a pretty bad cough. And um, I'd rather not cough three times a minute in a podcast because, you know, that probably wouldn't be the funnest thing to listen to. So um, my apologies for missing the last two episodes. So we do have a chunk of news to talk about now. The first thing we're going to talk about is Aljamain Sterling pulled out of the rematch with Piotr Jan due to lingering neck issues. Now, that is, it's obviously not good because we need to get this bantamweight division figured out in terms of the belt. There was just too much talent at bantamweight to have it go to waste with a champion who is injured, you know, and a cha- and that champion also winning the belt via disqualification in a fight where he wasn't particularly winning doesn't help that case either. Now, this is a border. I don't like stripping champions. I really, really don't like it. And, you know, when we're thinking, you know, what would make... What would put this division in the best spot? I don't think Aljamain Sterling holding the belt right now puts us in the best spot. Now, I think we need to see Aljo and Jan run it back, and I do think we need to see that whenever Aljamain is healthy. But I don't think... I think what we need to do would be strip Aljamain Sterling of the belt... And I think that would be beneficial for both the UFC and Aljamain. Now, the reason I have that opinion is because right now, 
we need some clarity. And I think stripping Aljamain Sterling and booking Piotr Jan versus anybody else, as long as, you know, Piotr Jan has a chance to go out there and win the belt back, I think that would be beneficial for the UFC. For Aljamain Sterling, this would be beneficial because now he doesn't have the pressure of returning at any specific timetable. You know, when you get injured and have surgery and necks are nothing to really play with, you got to heal that injury. And I think with the, the caveat on this should be that Aljamain Sterling does get a title shot when he is healthy. Okay, I think we should strip Aljamain, give him his time to recover. That could be next summer. It could be next spring. And when he's ready, give him a fight for the belt or give him a fight against Jan, depending on what the situation is looking at. Give him a high-level fight because he has earned that through his previous body of work and um, winning the belt. Um, No matter how he win it, he still won the belt. So... Summarize that, Aljamain Sterling, strip him of the belt, give him time to recover from his injury, and when he is recovered fully, throw him in there against Jan or the current belt holder. I just don't like the situation where we hold up this division when you've got TJ Dillashaw, when you've got Corey Shanhagen, when you've got Rob Font, when you've got Jose Aldo, Holding up the division really just puts us in a bad spot. And that's really my thoughts on that. Now, the UFC is looking to book an interim championship to take Aljamain Sterling's spot on that fight. Now, um, looking at the guys who should fill in for Aljamain, the number one thought would be TJ Dillashaw because he did just beat Corey Sanhagen. I still think he won that fight, but regardless of what happened, TJ Dillashaw got his hand raised at the end of the night. Now, problem with that is TJ Dillashaw is recovering from that knee injury, so TJ Dillashaw can't make that date. Then moving on to who would be next, that gives us Corey Sanhagen. And it looks like Corey Sandhagen is going to be fighting for that interim belt. Nothing is official, but that is very likely Corey Sandhagen versus Piotr Jan for the 135-pound interim belt. Now, this is a fight that you could book this fight if these two guys were unranked. You could book this fight if they were, you know, on 10-fight losing streaks. You could book this fight whenever. But we're booking it for an interim title, and this is going to be a beautiful fight. This is a stylistic matchup from heaven, and Corey Sanhagen versus Piotr Jan. This is going to be a war, and I think these are probably the two best strikers in the division going at it. (coughs) So I'm excited, regardless of, you know, the extracurriculars that are going on in the 135-pound division. We're still going to get an absolutely tremendous fight because that's all Piotr Jan and Corey Sanhagen give us. So that is something I will be looking forward to regardless of the situation around the belt. Another fight we've talked about, um, so I'm not going to go too in-depth on this. Max Holloway versus Yair Rodriguez, November 13th. Winner is going to fight for the belt, pretty sure. And 
I don't think Max Holloway needed to take this fight, but sounds like Max Holloway wanted to fight, so they gave him Yair Rodriguez. We're going to see a fight, and um, we'll talk more about that when it, when it gets closer. But that is a fight I will be looking forward to. Some other news that transpired over the weekend. City Kickboxing is going to move to America. That was rumored by Dan Hooker. He said, hey, that's something we're looking at. Israel Adesanya came out, I believe it was either Saturday night or Sunday morning, pretty much said, hey, we're going to America. The reasoning behind that is City Kickboxing has not liked the way they've been treated by the Australian government during COVID and the COVID lockdown. Now, they're upset because they were struggling to get lockdown exemptions to train. Um, And... They were upset because other sports like rugby and I believe soccer was the other one they mentioned were able to get exemptions very easily, but they felt the city kickboxing felt they were being treated differently um, in comparison to other professional sports when they were professionals as well. Valid argument coming to America in the current aspect of fighting is most of these fights are going to be taking place in America. And if they're not taking place in America, they're going to be taking place on Fight Island in Dubai. So, you know, this takes out a lot of the issues that City Kickboxing has been having with travel. I mean, if Dan Hooker is the prime example from what we just saw with him trying to get to the into the USA on a work visa. And then him previously having to quarantine to and from America or to and when he left and when he got back to Australia, um, wasn't able to see his family for a large portion of time, had to stay in Fight Island after his one fight on Fight Island because he couldn't get home because they didn't have the quarantine hotels open. I think this really just takes a lot of stress off of city kickboxing and being able to train and being able to get two fights so I don't blame them at all for this move. It, I don't know if it's temporary. Don't know if it is permanent. But also, City Kickboxing is also going to be able to bring in a lot higher level of grapplers. I mean, just geographically, looking at Australia, there aren't as many good wrestlers in Australia as there are in America. Just based off the culture, what sports are popular where competitions take place, it's a lot easier to find elite wrestlers to train with in America in comparison to Australia and New Zealand. Now, that makes what Alex Volkanovsky did with um, Brian Ortega last night even more impressive with that statement in mind. So I really like this move from City Kickboxing. Um, I think America is the best place to train if you're fighting because you do have the vast array of talent around you, you can go to Colorado, get elevation. Um, if you don't want elevation, you can go to Florida, L.A. You know, there's plenty of places where you can train, and you don't have to deal with the stress of work visa traveling to get to the U.S. Uh, it just makes things a lot easier and a lot simpler, so I completely understand the move from the kickboxing. Another noteworthy thing, we talked about this a bit earlier, but according to his coach, Mark Henry, he is back, and he's going to be fighting again. So who do we 
book Zabit against in his return? Well, the answer that I would like to give would be Yair Rodriguez. However, that fight will not be taking place because we've got Max Holloway versus Yair Rodriguez. So for Zabit, what do we do? Um, it depends when he's looking to fight. If he's looking to fight in four months, you know, if he's looking to fight early 2021, I think we got to go Calvin Cater. Um, if not, if he's looking to fight sooner, I think the Korean zombie is the way to go. Um, I just think a large layoff for Zabit and a large layoff. Well, never mind. Cater and Zabit already fought. That completely slipped my mind. So Korean zombie is my answer to who should Zabit fight in his return. All right, another notable thing that happened over the last couple weeks. We had Gable Stevenson. Gable Stevenson is going to fight in the WWE. Dana wanted him to fight once regionally and then fight on the contender series before he got into the UFC. And he didn't want to do that. And he's choosing to go to the WWE. Now, WWE just isn't my um, WWE isn't my style, right? If Gable Stevenson, enjoy, Gable Stevenson enjoys WWE and that's something that he likes, then that's fine. I respect the decision. Um, I would have obviously loved to see him in the UFC. and But I think this is probably a good move by the UFC just because it's tough. It's really tough making your debut in the UFC. I think heavyweight would have been the weight class to do it if he would have... Um, if you were to make that transition right away, skipping, you know, regional fights, I think that a, I think that the heavyweight would be the division to do it, but it's still so hard to do without having any real striking competitively, um, without any background in that, you know, obviously he's a tremendous wrestler would be one of the best wrestlers on the roster maybe even the best I don't you know probably the best but it's just really tough without any striking experience justifying going straight to the UFC and if he wants to go to the WWE WWE more credit to him and then someone who is looking to take the route that was suggested to Gable Stevenson that is Bo Nickel now, if you don't know who Bo Nickel is, Bo Nickel was a wrestler for Penn State. He won several, I believe, NCAA titles. I think he won three. Uh, he won a Wrestler of the Year award. So Bo Nickel is an incredible wrestler, an incredible wrestler. He did not go the Olympic route because in order for Bo Nickel to make the Olympic roster and, and wrestle in the Olympics, he would have had to have beat David Taylor, who is, for those who don't know, an all-time great wrestler. It would have been like a UFC fighter having to beat, you know, someone like Volkanovsky or Kamara Usman in order to, you know, travel with the competing MMA team. That is the equivalent of what Bo Nickel would have had to do. And, you know, he was going to take his talents to MMA. He fought David Conley on a goofy, you know, Brett or TikTok or something stupid card that I didn't watch. But Bo Nickel did win via arm triangle in the first round. 
didn't get to watch the fight, can't find the fight. But if Bo Nickel can keep, you know, chipping away a couple amateur fights, growing his striking repertoire, um, I think he's got a real future in the sport. He's a very cool guy, marketable guy. Um, this is something that I am definitely looking forward to, and I hope more college wrestlers really take this route here. Another fight that did recently have recent was recently announced is um, Demetrius Johnson versus Rod Dang is going to happen in a mixed rules route, mixed rules bout where rounds one and three are going to be Muay Thai, and rounds two and four are going to be MMA. So, um, if you're interested in mixed rules, mixed rules fights, or if you're a fan of Demetrius Johnson, or if you're a fan of Rod Dang, then, uh, that'll be a fight you're, you'll be looking forward to. Um, I'll probably end up watching it. I think it's interesting. Um, we'll talk more about that when it happens, probably. Um, just wanted to throw that out there. Now, here are the UFC fights that have been booked recently. We've had... Moreno versus Figueredo 3, booked for December 11th. That is UFC 269. Now, did this fight need to happen? I don't think so. I think the performance we saw from Brandon Moreno proved he is the best 125-pounder in the world. And I think that a fight with another top contender like Askar Askarov would have made more sense in this. But Davison Figueredo is no joke. Absolutely no joke. Figueredo is someone I've been very high on in this podcast. If you've been listening for a long time, I've spoke very highly of him. I think he's a tremendous fighter. And I think he's going to have a shot here. But Brandon Moreno being able to go in there and take someone that I think is as good as Figueredo out um, shows a lot about Brandon Moreno. And I think he wins again. So... Brandon Moreno versus Figueredo 3 added to December 11th, UFC 269. Also on that card is Amanda Nunes versus Juliana Pena. And they are in the works of getting Dustin Poirier versus Charles Oliveira on that card. That fight is not official, but it is being looked at. Now, Brendan Allen is going to be getting his um, fight in the rankings He's got, got his wish of getting someone in the top 15. That's going to come against Brad Tavares on December 4th. I think Brendan Allen deserved the top 15 guy, and I think Brad Tavares is a good guy um, to break into the top 15 against. Now, Adrian Yanez is also returning on November 20th when he takes on Davy Grant. I think that's another really good booking. I'm interested to see Adrian Yanez fight again. When Adrian Yanez fights, I'm watching. So, nothing more to see there. Ryan Hall making a quick return after his loss to Ila Taboria. He's taking on Derek Minner, December 11th. And I'm really interested to see this fight because I'm interested to see what we're going to get from Ryan Hall. Um, Derek Minner, also a formidable opponent. But are we going to get the Ryan Hall that people were talking about being a future champion or, you know, are we going to get the performance we saw against Ila Tuporia? And I'll be I'll be ready for that. That is also December 11th. And then Rafaela Sunsau versus Ricky Simone added to the December 18th card. That is another good fight. Rafaela Sunsau number 12 in the rankings. 
and Ricky Simone has gotten a couple wins, so he's working to break into that top 15. I think that fight makes a lot of sense. Ricky Simone deserves a ranked opponent, and Rafael Asuncao is a good um, a good guy to enter those rankings against. So, um, yeah, Ricky Simone's on a three-fight win streak with his last two losses being to Rob Font and Uriah Faber. So nothing to shy away from there. Also got wins against Marab, um, Montel Jackson, and Ronnie Yanha. So Ricky Simone is no joke, and he's starting, you know, he had a little setback, and he was a very talked-about prospect, but now he's making his way back uh, into those rankings. So very good for Ricky Simone there. And the last thing we are going to talk about today, and that is we had two retirements that um, you've probably already seen, but I wanted to touch on here. Joseph Benavidez and Carlos Condit both retired. Two tremendous careers. I mean, two tremendous careers, and I think they're both retiring at a good time. I don't think they held on too long. And um, some very, good, very, very good careers. Absolute legends. Um, UFC gave them some tributes, so you've probably seen those. So... Joey B. and Carlos Condit wanted to touch on that. Nothing too much to talk about, but I did want to at least acknowledge it. And we're not going to break into Tiago Santos versus Johnny Walker. Um, there isn't too much. There, well, there are some good fights to talk about. There just isn't anything crazy to talk about. You know what I mean? Well, there are some good fights. Antonia Shevchenko is fighting Casey O'Neill. That'll be a good one. Nico Price versus Alex Oliveira, Tiago Santos versus Johnny Walker, obviously the main event, Espen Ladd versus Macy Chioson, Kevin Holland's back versus Kyle Dowskis, Misha Kirkenov working his way down to middleweight versus Christoph Njoko. So there's some good fights to look forward to. Um, I'll be watching that card. That card's not that bad. We will be doing a breakdown of that card a week from today, so make sure you return for that next Sunday. But that is all I've got for this episode of the Head Kick Kale podcast. As always, thank you for watching and make sure you tune in next week. Goodbye.